This is the Muscles and Management Podcast, where we build your body and your business. Talking all things training, sports performance, and business for athletes and aspiring coaches to enhance your training and better your career. Muscles and Management is brought to you by Challenger Strength with your host, Jerry DeFilippo. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 180 of the Muscles and Manager podcast. Excited to be back with you guys this week. Have some fun stuff coming up. Um, if you haven't already, I just want to, before I get things going, um, talk about just, you know, rating, reviewing, um, the show and, and all that kind of stuff and subscribing. Just make sure you don't miss any updates. Um, you know, it really is helpful and sharing the show and, and doing all, you know, of those things is really helpful. Um, you know, I know I got to earn it. If you get something of value from this, uh, you know, and you want to subscribe from that or you want to share it with somebody or post it, whatever it is, um, you know, that is always really appreciated and something that helps a lot. So I actually had someone tweet this week. We did the depth jump episode last week, uh, which I want to get into a little bit, but. We did the depth jump episode last week and someone tweeted like, this is awesome. Like definitely going to be subscribing, uh, to your show. So I think it's kind of cool. Like, I don't want you guys just to subscribe to this because like I have a lot of followers or you, you know, just think you should, like if you're getting something out of it and it benefits you in a way, um, and you feel like it's helped you or you feel like it could help other people like subscribe, share it, whatever it is. Um, you know, really think that's important to, to make sure that it's like, because you actually enjoy the show and, and that I'm giving you good value. So um, go, if you haven't yet, check out the baseball performance summit that I keep mentioning. Uh, I did a presentation, gotten some good feedback on that. Uh, overall, just 15 of the best minds in baseball, strength and conditioning across college, professional, um, high school, private sector, et cetera. Um, I'll put the link in the show. Um, but I, I have an affiliate link that you guys can use, uh, and, and I'll drop that in there, but go check that out if you haven't already. Um, as I mentioned, depth jumps, episode 170. Nine, um, really think that you should go listen to that if you haven't yet. That is one of the most positive feedbacks I've gotten on an episode in a long time. And I got to be honest with you, like it, it kind of revitalized my um, feelings about the show. And I only say that meaning like I have a lot going on and, and I do a lot of things and there's a lot going on with the facility. And I got to be honest with you, like, I never want to miss weeks. Like, I really try to put this show out as often as I can. And I think I've honestly, I've missed less than 10 weeks uh, in the last, like, two years. Um, but I, I really think that, like, seeing the feedback that the, the episode got and the amount of downloads that it got being the most that it has in a while. Like, I mentioned wanting to revamp the show and, and shift over to more of these solo episodes of me just teaching you guys stuff and going over things and providing information. And I really, uh, I really do think that, you know, I, I'm excited. Like I, I want to put this out there. I want to, you know, really get behind this thing again with the promos that I used to drop and, um, you know, really give you guys information on t topics that you can actually use. Like I want you to listen to an episode and feel like you can go do more to help your athletes that day when you program. Like I, I or if you're an athlete, you're going to listen to this and feel like you can go add something into your training that you weren't doing before. Like that's the kind of show that I want to create. So I'm really pumped. Uh, the depth jump episode got a lot of good feedback um, from a lot of important people too. And a lot of coaches that said that it's going to immediately help them, um, with what they're doing. And that even if they did know a lot of the stuff that I did a great job of explaining it, which is awesome to hear. So, uh, go check that out. If you haven't yet really good, uh, response on that. With that said, um, I want to start, you know, going over, 
my week of tweets. And I think that's important because you can only explain so much uh, in Twitter. So uh, let's look through some of the stuff that I tweeted this week and, and, you know, what I was saying and maybe what some of it means to me. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll go through some stuff. So let me go back to uh, everything that I've put out since last week. There's a lot of stuff there. I'm only going to go over the ones I think are noteworthy. Um, let's see here. So, all right. Uh, All right, this is, I think this is an important one. Building the ultimate strength conditioning and physical therapist dynamic. Uh, The best SNC coaches value info they can get from PTs and know what they can't provide uh, that PTs can or things that they shouldn't provide. Um, The best PTs value how SNC coaches can progress rehabilitation plan and they know when it's time to graduate athletes to SNC. Um, I, I've told you this before, the big pet peeve of mine is strength coaches doing things out of their scope of practice and trying to like apply STEM or physical, you know, manual uh, therapy to um, athletes and not, you know, referring out. If an athlete's injured, if it's something that you don't know or, or you can't uh, help them fix, like it's not a bad thing to say you can't help them and to refer out to somebody. And the biggest recommendation that I can make as a strength coach is to develop a relationship with, if you're like you're a private sector person, find a, a practice in your area that you believe in and that you can trust to send your athletes to so that when they have a problem, you know, you can just send them over there right away versus you trying to uh, fix it when you actually don't know how to, and you can make things worse. Um, and as a PT, I think that like, one of the big things that I've learned is there has to be a time where you know your limitations. Like if you're, for example, um, progressing an athlete back from ACL surgery, once they're pretty much cleared, they're going to need more than I think your knowledge will actually allow you to help them with in terms of the sprinting and the plyometric and, and strength and conditioning side. So understand when it's a good time to reach out to a strength and conditioning coach and say, hey, like you could take it from here. Here's my perspective on what they're at, where they're at right now. But I think it's time that you know, you got involved in the process because, um, you know, they need to do more advanced things that might I not might not be able to give them as someone who's not uh, an SNC coach. So I think that's huge. And I think above all else, we also really need to make sure that if we are working with an athlete, um, it's the best for the athlete when the PT, the athletic trainer, the sport coach, uh, the strength coach, and this specific scenario, the strength coach and the physical therapist, if the athlete's working through an injury, uh, they need to be on the same page. As much information that can be shared as possible is only going to benefit the athlete because the programming will be better, um, you know, and everything across the board will will be uh, much stronger. So I, I can't stress that enough. Work together and make sure that you are referring out when needed. All right, let's look at a couple more. Um, let's see here. I'm honestly going to just find the ones that have the most likes. I think that means that they got the most uh, feedback and were the most interesting tweets. So, oh yeah, uh, it's almost 2022. No one cares if you think a trap bar doesn't count as a deadlift. We train athletes to move faster, more explosively. Keep your guidelines for your powerlifting fandom. I am really starting to get pissed off about this. Like I, I could care less or I couldn't care less. I, I have made that mistake before. Couldn't care less. Um, you know, whether you think it's a conventional lift, uh, whether you are really into, uh, powerlifting and think that the, the barbell deadlift is harder, which it probably is in the, in the sense of the biomechanics of it. But we are training athletes. If we're using a trap bar deadlift, a back squat, a front squat, whatever it is, a clean, um, the, the sole intention behind it 
is to help them with their athletic qualities. Like I really could care, couldn't care less about their proficiency in a lift and whether or not it's mechanically harder to do a deadlift uh, than a trap bar deadlift. And that if you think it counts or doesn't count because there's more knee flexion involved in a trap bar. Um, you know, I said this, but you know, if you are using a trap bar and the athlete tends to move it with a little more knee flexion, um, I think just not trying to act like it's something that it isn't and know that it isn't maybe a true hinge at all times and, and, and adding in RDLs or rack pulls or true um, hinge dominant movements to your programming, like acknowledge that. Like I, I know that I don't really care if it's a true hinge or not, if they are moving more weight in the lift and it's getting their vertical better, it's helping them uh, sprint faster, they're moving heavy weight and the motor unit recruitment benefit is helping them in some way, uh, whatever it is, like that's really all I care about. I think that's all we should care about. Uh, as strength and conditioning coaches. So stop obsessing over that much. Like we say, stop obsessing over variations. Um, you know, whatever gets the athlete better works for your population, your circumstance, what you can teach expertly. I think that's the most important stuff. Um, this one I definitely want to touch on cause I did get some questions on it and it got a lot of good feedback. Uh, how I'd structure a speed day. So the biggest questions that I want to answer on this. So I, and I'm going to do an episode on this eventually, but I basically said I would go into some extensive pogos for warm up, uh, intensive pogos for ramp up, top speed work, um, ex- loaded acceleration, unloaded acceleration, deceleration and change of direction, loaded plyometrics, unloaded plyometrics, and then I'd go to lifts, dynamic lifts, or any throwing stuff that I want to do with med balls, uh, and then any support uh, exercises that I want to do accessories. So. Um, I think the biggest questions that I got on this were, how do you pick which exercises you're doing, when to do them, whatever. And I think the biggest thing you need to do is like, that could be a template that you use. Um, and if I were doing all of those things in the same session, that's how I would structure them. So first and foremost, like if you're training an athlete three to four days a week, I wouldn't recommend structuring your training like that. Cause if you have the luxury of training four days a week, you can probably start to separate, uh, your training into top speed days and acceleration days. And if you want uh, a little help on how you could do that, you can go back and listen to, uh, episode 177, where I talk about like dividing those things up. So that's the first thing. This is a good setup if you're doing a, you know, one speed day per week and you kind of, you have to touch on a lot of different areas. That's the way I would order it. The other question I got is like, what if I don't have a lot of time? You know, obviously cutting down sets and reps of things is going to be something you want to look at. Uh, you might not do all of those things. Like you might have an athlete where you say, okay, we have very limited time to train them. They're in season. What are they getting a lot of in sport? What are they not getting a lot of? Like, you know, they're, they're doing a lot of high end level sprinting in their sport. Uh, we're going to work more on loaded accelerations because we're not getting that as much. So we're going to cut those things out. Um, they're practicing five days a week. They are probably getting a, a good amount of stimulation in the terms of the reactionary component of agility. So maybe we don't work on that as much, whatever it is. Uh, I think that's, you know, those are questions you need to ask yourself and things you need to answer so you can make those decisions when it comes to how I, um, structure this. I always like extensive pogos, you know, they're important for the idea of just kind of prepping the calf and ankle that we always talk about. But additionally, I like them as kind of like the first thing we do uh, at the end of our warm up to kind of get things rolling uh, for our speed day, ramping it up to intensive, extensive, meaning like not as much height, maybe less intense and a little bit longer in time. So we might do like a 30 second pogo jump for our extensives, whereas an intensive might be like six to eight seconds and we're going as high as we can and as quick as we can off the ground um, because we're a little more intense in nature and we're doing it more 
to prepare or get the athletes ready for the higher uh, intensity impacts they're going to have in the rest of the session. Uh, from there, I would do any top speed work. The reason I do that first is uh, I want the athletes to be extremely fresh for their top speed work. It is extremely volatile, but I also, you know, I'm only going to get as much effect as I can out of that after doing it at full rest and recovery or as recovered as they can be um, to get the most effect out of it. So any flying sprints or longer sprints I would do first. From there, and, and those could only be a couple. If you're limited on time, maybe it's two flying sprints. From there, we're going to go loaded acceleration. I enjoy doing loaded sprints prior to unloaded sprints when it comes to acceleration work. Um, just from the potentiation factor involved, fancy word for like the heavier sled is going to kind of like stimulate us a little bit and maybe increase the output that we're getting in our unloaded sprints. And it's going to reinforce some good mechanics that we're going to get uh, with the load being pulled behind us that we can capitalize on in our unloaded sprint work. From there, like I said, I can go to some unloaded acceleration work. That's all my traditional speed work. And I say traditional, meaning like there's no stopping or um, reactionary stuff. It's just straight up like building straight line speed. Um, from there, I would go into deceleration and change of direction work. So that could be anything from, and I'm going to get into this. This is a good segue for the rest of the episode because I'm going to talk about structuring that and what you need to know about, you know, agility and deceleration and change of direction stuff. But um, that would be next. I actually kind of like the idea of doing that with a little bit of fatigue that's coming from the previous sprints that we've done. Um, you know, you are going to have times in sport where you have to stop and make decisions and change directions when you're not the most energized. So I think that's kind of cool to work on that. And uh, there was a coach, I think it was Damian Harper is his name that uh, dropped. He's, he's really good with deceleration stuff and the research behind it. He dropped an article or a research study talking about the benefits of doing sled sprinting before deceleration work because it really gets your body on an angle and kind of gets you going a little more. So maybe you're going to put more into your sprint that going into your decel, which is going to challenge a decel even more, which I thought was a really cool idea. So uh, that's where I would go with that. Then I would treat plyometrics the same way. I would do loaded jumps first for the same stimulus for the unloaded jumps that I'm trying to get with the loaded sprints into the unloaded sprints um, and, and do it that way. And then after that, like anything on the explosive strength side that's going to be moving a little slower because there's a little more load like a dynamic squat or a dynamic trap bar, uh, deadlift or a heavy med ball throw ever, that's going to come next. And then at the end that, you know, we're kind of going down the list. Um, everything that's intense is going to be done at that point. That's faster. And then I could work on, you know, we could do calf raises, uh, hamstring curls, whatever we want to do just to do, to, to work this support mech, uh, hip flexor, knee, knee raises, whatever we want to do to work on the support musculature that's valuable in sprinting. We can do after that. So that's my general template. Things can change here and there, but if I'm, you know, in an overall sense, going to talk about it, that's how I would do it. All right. Uh, so it, it was good. It, it was cool to go over a couple of those. Um, my next thing I want to do is I want to answer one question that I got from uh, somebody on Twitter. So uh, let's just look at, uh, let's see, let me find a good question here. All right. This is a really good question, I think, regarding the speed template that I just uh, talked about this is from Trent Walker at Coach T Walker. Uh, thanks for the post on your thoughts for structuring a speed day for a high school football team this semester. How many speed days like that tempo would you program each week? So great question, Trent. If I were programming the speed day in the way that I described it in that tweet, and you can go back and look at that, I wouldn't do it more than once a week because if we're doing that type of template 
We're doing it because we kind of have to get everything done in one speed day because I only have the ability to do one speed day. So if you have the luxury of doing two speed days and the athletes are a bit older, you could start to uh, separate day one as a top speed day. So um, apply the things from that. Like you could do more vertically based plyometrics or uh, pogo jumps, the flying sprints or longer sprints, um, more vertically based plyometrics like regular box jumps or hurdle jumps, uh, things like that. And then you can save the loaded sprints, the unloaded 10-yard sprints, things like that, deceleration work, broad jumps, all that kind of stuff um, for the acceleration-based day. And again, if you want to go back, you can look at episode 177 where I outline how to do this. Um, if you're only training one day a week for speed and you have athletes that kind of need to touch on all areas, I would do it that way. I would not use that template if I had more than one day a week. I don't think it's wise to do that much on two different speed days uh, in a given week. So that's kind of what I would say to that. So great question, Trent. Um, the other thing I also want to do now is I would like to also each week point out a, uh, a tweet from a fellow coach that I thought kind of caught or somebody that I thought kind of caught my eye. And the biggest thing I, I saw this this morning, um, I, and I really liked it. This is from Brandon Pig. Uh, he works with Cody Hughes. Cody mentioned him on his episode on the podcast, uh, and he's assisting him, uh, at their high school and they're doing some great stuff. Uh, he tweeted, Honesty Hour. The CSCS is in my name exclusively because I'm not a household name yet. And having it there automatically lets people know what I do. That's it. Some of y'all might as well get the Essentials book written in King James Version text the way you treat it like a Bible. So I like this for a couple reasons. Firstly, uh, I, I do agree with the idea that like, you know, having a cert on your business card, on your resume, um, and on resumes, you might need them always, no matter who you are, because some schools require them or some universities or, or pro teams require them. But having it as something to kind of get your foot in the door and just establish that you have a base level of knowledge, or even if you don't agree that, you know, passing that certification automatically makes you able to be a good coach. You know, it clearly is a standard right now that the industry has. So, um, you know, at least just putting that there to identify who you are and what you do, I think is a good point from him. And then the other thing I think that he brought up that is really good is like, yeah, you might have it for that, but like what comes from the CSCS book or manual that you would study for the test or what you learn from the cert, things like that. Like they are not the be all end all of training. You might find things that work differently uh, in your settings or things that you find work better in your setting. Um, You know, you got to get out there and have coaching experience on the floor and you'll start to realize um, you know, what things that are really entrenched in the foundations of strength conditioning might not need to be that way anymore. And what are those type of things that should be there and come to some of your own conclusions, um, about that type of stuff. So really thought that was a great tweet from him and something that I wanted to touch on because I definitely have you, as you guys have heard in the past, I share, um, you know, that those, that, that belief, uh, in, in terms of, you know, certifications and what they mean as a coach. So, with that said, this week, I want to talk to you guys about the difference between change of direction and agility. Um, the big, I, I think the, the thing we need to really start out with here is the big distinction between what change of direction is and what agility is. So, and I think this is where some people get confused, which could cause some issues. So the biggest difference is change of direction is the idea of obviously moving left to right, stopping and starting, you know, things like that, putting your foot in the ground and, and changing where you are going with the force you're putting into the ground. The force to ground is acting back upon you and you're, you know, you're moving in another direction. 
The difference between change of direction, the physiological component of moving and changing where your body is going differs from agility in the sense that change of direction implies that you might be moving, but like you're maybe predetermined in where you're moving or um, you're going to just stop because you decided you want to stop or you're going to cut to the right or the left because you're deciding that there's nothing in the environment that you are in that is changing whether or not you're going to make a certain maneuver. Uh, that is where agility comes in. Agility is in an environment that is free flowing where, you know, you have to, um, process what is going on in front of you. And after you process, make a decision on how you're going to move. And we can actively get better at how fast and how, uh, much more effectively we can make those decisions the more we are exposed to these environments. But yeah, agility is not agility unless you are actually reacting to things that aren't predetermined, that are kind of random and chaotic in, in a free-flowing environment. So you can work on change of direction separately than you can from agility and vice versa. And I think that's important um, because confusing them can lead to issues. And I think one of the biggest issues is I see a lot of people talk about doing agility work um, you know, let's just say, like I talk all the time about how I don't like a lot of the ways people use the ladder, but there are some good ways you can use it. One of the ways that I've seen, I've seen some good coaches talk about this. I also saw some videos uh, back when Saquon Barkley was doing his ACL rehab where he had the ladder and he was, uh, it was like going horizontally and he was facing it and he would kind of work into it and plant hard and stop as more of like a controlled kind of decel, uh, unilateral decel on each leg. And that is, you know, a better way to use it than a lot of the tap dance type drills that I see, but it's still not agility. And it's not agility because the athlete knows the move they're making each time. Uh, there's nothing at stake, right? Like there's, there's nothing, um, that they are adjusting to. He's not, you know, planting and stopping because a defender is moving in front of him or a ball is being dropped or whatever it is. Um, so he's working on change of direction and not agility. And I, I often see a lot of people talk about, oh, getting some agility work in and it's using a predetermined drill. There's cones delineating where you should stop or start. Uh, that is not agility. And I think, you know, you need to understand that. But then at the same time, understand that once you, un- once you do get that, it means that it's okay to use cones and use other things when that is your goal. When your goal is just purely, you know, working on getting force into the ground and learning how to stop the right way or learning how to stop and start or, or cut or whatever it is, you can have marked out areas or things that, to, to uh, signify where you want those things to occur, right? So, yeah, we should work on both. Um, I think the physiological component of being able to decelerate or move or change directions independent from there being a reactionary component to it is valuable for, you know, plenty of reasons. I'll get to why and, and things that we, that are important in terms of that. And then obviously working on getting better to uh, making those same maneuvers and same movements when there is something at stake, it's something that's going to be actually be driving the way in which you're moving. I think that they're equally important. Um, so with that said though, you might be thinking to yourself, all right, like they're, they're different, but like, when do I decide? How do I decide, uh, which of those two things to work on? So like, when should I make it more controlled and more change of direction based? And when should I make it more reactionary or cognitive and, and we're processing information and all that kind of stuff? Um, one of the questions I like to think of is the time of year. So are we in season? Are we off season? In season athletes are practicing and playing games many times a week. So, they're going to be getting a lot of natural exposure to free-flowing environments where they're like, it doesn't get any more legit than that when you're practicing or playing your sport. Like 
we could have the best agility drill ever. We could be like the coolest thing we've ever done, but it's still not going to be as good as being on the ice as a hockey player or bouncing or, or uh, bouncing a ball on the basketball court around defenders or um, being a baseball player and, and an infielder and moving around and adjusting to where a ball is hit or, or a football player um, running around defenders or guarding a receiver or whatever it is. Like that is going to be the ultimate uh, exposure in terms of that. So if they're doing that five to six times a week, it might be a good time to say, okay, I don't think I need to spend any more of the valuable time or limited time that I have training to work on that. Maybe I want to still work on some of the deceleration mechanisms involved um, just to make sure from a health standpoint, we're still kind of hitting some of those areas and making sure that we're keeping up on the mechanics involved and decelerating from like a limiting soft or reducing soft tissue injury standpoint. Um, but I would definitely ask myself what time of year it is. There, from there, I would ask, what level is the athlete? Are they brand new? Or are they just starting out? Do we have a lot that we need to work on when it comes to the mechanics of decelerating, cutting, making moves like that? Like, if we have a lot to work on when it comes to that, just like any other exercise, the regression obviously, obviously would be like make it more predetermined. Work on the actual mechanics of things and say, hey, you're going to stop here. You're going to start here. You're going to do these things in a more controlled setting so we can get a little bit better at them at, at first. And then as the athlete progresses, we can shift over to more of a mindset on, okay, like they got the basic mechanics of this down. Like we're not going to have a, you know, them react to a free flowing environment and have them blow out a knee because they don't even know how to stop or just slip and fall or just not be very effective. Like we've gone over this. We've built up the relationship with the ground in terms of exerting force on the ground, handling what the ground puts back on the limb when you're trying to change directions or start or stop. Um, you know, we've done all of those things. We can now maybe progress to something that's a little more reactionary based. So you got to just really look at the athlete and figure that out. And then as I said from there, like, what are we trying to work on? So like, am I more so concerned about the actual physiological components of starting and stopping my limbs, um, you know, how they handle the ground when it's acting on them, their ability to get into certain advantageous positions. Like when you decelerate, you want to get your torso tall so that it's not falling past your knees and pulling you forward. You want to break your strides down, lower your center of mass, do all of those things. Um, you know, I think it's really important to, to understand, like, do I need to develop those qualities still or have they been developed and I can work on, you know, putting those things to use in an environment where the athlete's going to now improve their ability to process scenarios and make decisions that's going to enhance how they do it in, you know, in games and in their sport. So really set aside, like, just like you would, would do with anything else in your programming, you got to figure out what your goals are. And that's why I think it's super important with anything, whether it's speed training, agility training, strength training, whatever it is, like, you got to identify what your goals are and what you're trying to achieve. Cause once you do that, you could more easily make decisions in terms of what you're going to do uh, and how you're going to do it. I think too many times you see a lot of people get caught up in just, um, you know, flying by the seat of their pants. Like they might have really good programming. They might have really good knowledge of um, exercise selection and do a really good job with that. And they might cue things really well and they might coach things really well, but there's just what's lacking is the, overall plan, the structure, the here's what we're trying to do today and what I hope to do someday, that might change based on how things go. But like, I have an idea of where I'm trying to get to. Like, I'm not just getting in the car and just going for a drive on a Sunday drive. Like I can go on a Sunday drive and, you know, 
do some nice things and, and go go at some fast speeds and make some nice turns, or I can get in the car and I can have a you know a GPS that's kind of setting me on where I need to go, and every turn is based on the end destination that I'm trying to get to. Uh, there might be a detour along the way, and I might have to change where I'm trying to go or how I'm going to get there. But there's an overall decision being made on where I am trying to get to that's going to help dictate a lot of what we do and a lot of what we eventually get to do. So I think you need to make that decision based on, like I said, time of year, the athlete you're working with, their proficiency in their movements as it is, and then like the actual goals of what you want to work on. I think like answer all of those questions and that's going to kind of help you make that decision. So I mentioned before, I keep saying something has to be at stake here. So like I said before, you know, having cones laid out, like a four cone drill and, and uh, you know, the athlete knows exactly where they're moving to. Like, yeah, they might sprint to cone one and then go right into a side shuffle. So there is going to be some kind of change of direction. Um, they're going to be doing a, um, you know, a, a, a deceleration into a sudden stop, but the stop is demarcated by a cone. So they know exactly where that's going to be done. Like, yes, they are putting forts into the ground. They are making maneuvers and changing direction and doing all of those things. But they aren't, they don't need to evaluate anything. Like they're not actively looking at anything that they're doing. Um, you know, and it's not driving any of the decisions they're making or any of the movements that they're making. So, um, like I said, do the athletes, does the environment that you're in, does it make the athletes need to evaluate something? Like, are they looking at another athlete move, watching a ball drop? Um, you know, listening to something that's driving what they're doing? Um, you know, trying to, uh, process a, um, something related to a play or a movement or a strategy, you know, is there anything at play that they have to evaluate that dictates how they're going to move, right? If it doesn't, if there isn't something present to dictate their movement and where they're going, you are not working on agility. Like there needs to be something at stake. There needs to be something that they need to evaluate and look at um, and, and define in their head to then send signals to, okay, this is where I'm going to maneuver based on that, right? Advice would honestly be to watch sports. I think the more you watch sports, the more you realize, you know, what drives movement uh, or decision-making a lot of the time. And this is why I get honestly get so bent out of shape when I see like these blaze pods or these drills where athletes are adjusting to blinking lights. Like if you watch sports, most sports, like, I, I don't know. I've never watched football and I and seen a, a guy, you know, cut left or right because the defender, you know, pulled a green uh, flag out of their pocket or a red flag out of their pocket. You know, maybe you could argue that there is going to be some type of color processing based on the uniforms of their opponents and the uniforms of their own teammates. But, you know, they're not there's, those things aren't actively changing. Like they're not running towards three people and whatever one's jersey magically blinks blue is going to be the person they're trying to avoid. Like that's why I get so angry. If you want to treat it as like a, hey, we can kind of prime the athlete and get them ready. Maybe you can make that argument. But like trying to say that you have this world-class agility program and a majority of it is like the athletes doing dance, dance revolution, trying to tap on different colors on the floor or running forward and touching different pods that blink different colors. Like what's at stake in that scenario often is not at stake in their sport. Like you're not adjusting to the color of blinking lights, um, you know, when it comes to what you're trying to get done in your sport. And I think that's like the biggest disconnect. And, and I think if a lot of the people that use those types of things looked at sports and actually watched them, they would understand that there isn't that involved in the sport. 
And I think once you realize that, you start to see, okay, like, here's what I want to do. And here's what I think is actually valuable or of value when it comes to training on this type of stuff. And here's what's a waste of my time and, and not as productive or something that like, I can leave behind. And I think that's, like I said, just simple, like watch baseball, watch basketball, watch hockey, watch football, watch the sports soccer, watch the sports that your athletes play and see what they are actually making decisions based on. Like I had two soccer girls the other day and I posted this, do a basic mirror shadowing drill. And it's just like when you watch soccer players roam around the field, there's a ball like that they're moving around with, obviously. Like I don't necessarily need to have that involved. Like they're going to get enough of that ball involved in the, you know, pickup games we're playing or the training sessions we're having with their coach, but having them follow each other around and the back athlete, try to mirror what the one in the front is doing. Think about like how many times you're dribbling a soccer ball in a game and you're moving around based on what the people around you are doing and where they're moving. There starts to be some value to that, right? When you look at, um, you know, hockey players and, you know, maybe, and this is in my opinion, when you play hockey, like those guys are moving around the ice a lot of the times, not only because of what their opponents are doing, but where the puck is going. So, you know, having a ball involved that's going to move around or roll around, dictate where the athlete's moving to and making them have to kind of adjust to where it's going to, like see how the ball moves and that's going to kind of spur where they move is going to relate a little bit more to that. Again, Versus colors, like the blinking colors is not going to do as much with that. There is something at stake. There's something that they have to process um, before they can make a movement, right? And you could start basic. It can be basic things like verbal, like, you know, audible. I think audible cues are pretty good. Um, there are times in sport where uh, even linemen, like you look at football linemen, you know, um, the cadence or, or football players in general, the cadence that, um, you know, a quarterback is using on the offensive side. The players don't move until that cadence happens. The players don't move on defense or, or move uh, across to the ball until that cadence happens. So if you can like, you know, use different um, audio cues, like, you know, hey, if I say a number, you're going to go. If I say a color, you're going to not go. Like that's forcing them to evaluate what you just said and whether or not they should actually move or not. And then they have to now get better at, Figuring that out and then moving as fast as possible and making that process as fast as possible. So there are scenarios where that could be helpful. But you could start as basic as a stop and go. So the athlete isn't going to start their sprint until I say go and they're going to hammer the brakes when they say, when I say stop. Um, you know, you're going to do, you could progress. You can do a, uh, you're going to start when I say go, but now you're going to stop based on whether, uh, your teammate that's in front of you is going to move left or right. That's going to stop you or make you go in each direction. And you gradually progress and progress and progress until it's basically a free flowing environment where there's almost every val- uh, variable in play. A ball, a ball's moving and, and telling you where to go. Um, or you're just kind of following your teammate around and trying to shadow them. Like it's totally random. Their movements are totally unique. Um, and never going to be the same any sec, any additional time they do, uh, what they're doing. Like that, that shadow drill that I had and I posted the other day with those two girls, like they're never going to move the exact same way that that time they did it. And when they do it the time after or a week later or two weeks later, whatever it is, it's always going to be different, right? That is when it really gets free flowing. And I think, um, Tyler Yearby mentioned this and I, I've always stuck, this has always stuck with me. He works with, uh, uh, emergent movement. Um, I think, it's, uh, Patrick, no, uh, movement Miyagi. I can't remember what his actual name is. I apologize, but movement Miyagi does some great stuff and he's really, um, you know, doing some great things on the agility front. And Tyler talked to me about, um, the idea of becoming a tune, right? A tune meaning, you know, 
you have been in certain situations before that have prompted you to have to evaluate a certain thing and think a certain way. So that if you are faced with those situations again, you are naturally going to be better at processing what's in front of you because you're attuned to the environment that you're in. So the more we expose our athletes to these things, the more environments they become subject to, like the the bigger that bandwidth starts to get so that when they get faced with those environments again in sport or in practice or whatever, they start to have solutions in their mind that they've had before that make these things a little more seamless, right? So, you know, eventually that's our goal. Now, when it comes to an overall progression, uh, I think the biggest thing that I would do is I would start from more of the, um, you know, perspective of stopping and starting without there any kind of reactionary process to it. So uh, you have to think about it this way when it comes to deceleration and change of direction. The more distance that you're including in uh, what you're doing. So uh, we do these things called sprint stops. I would say like that's the most elementary version of what we do uh, for deceleration work where you start sprinting and then there's a cone at five yards and you hammer the brakes and stop. Uh, I think that's the biggest thing that we do, uh, or like the first thing that we do when it comes to that. Five yards into a stop is a lot easier to do than 10 yards into a stop. When you're going to do 10 yards into a stop, you have more time to build up more speed and it makes it even harder to decel. So five yards would actually be where I would start with that. And then I would get up to 10 yards. Once we progress um, from just purely stopping, obviously, like I said, we in- we increase the distance that we're doing. Uh, from there, I like to move on to stopping and then starting. So we want to build controlled deceleration first. Like if I can't stop myself uh, when I'm not worried about starting again, if I can't stop myself when I'm not having to uh, react to something, like if I can't just stop myself in a controlled quality way when there's not much else going on, I'm going to have a lot of trouble doing those other things. So that's the first thing that I like to do is I like to build that. Once I've built that, I begin to like to mix together acceleration and deceleration. So, and that, and that could be in a couple different ways. So acceleration, obviously when I start the sprint, deceleration, I'm coming to a stop, right? And what I'm doing is I'm saying, all right, guys, once you get to a complete stop, you're allowed to start again. So it's challenging that transition process to stopping and then going again, right? So you stopped, you jammed the brakes and that was phase one. Now we're adding back in. You have to get better at how well can you stop and then start up again. Because in sport, you're not always going to stop and be done. You're going to stop, have to adjust, and continue to uh, to go in the direction that you were going in. So we want to then eventually start to add in that acceleration after um, you know that initial stop. And that goes to the same type of thing. You know, Are we doing five yards, stopping, and then sprinting again? Are we going then to 10 yards of stopping and then sprinting again? Obviously, stopping at 10 yards, like I said, the greater the distance is a little bit harder, which then also challenges how much um, ease we're going to have at starting again. We begin to expand the distance as the athlete gets some uh, reps under the belt over weeks and weeks um, of the lesser distance, and we start to increase the distance once that happens. From there, I want to add different planes of motion. So now I'm not just running straight ahead, stopping, and then starting again. There's a side shuffle. There's a curve involved. Um, there's backwards movement. There is, you know, side to side cuts. Like we're starting to add different planes of motion into these movements where there's acceleration, there's deceleration, and there are, um, you know, components to it where, you know, we are not just moving in a straight line. We're going side to side backwards, uh, on 45 degree angles. Maybe we're rotating in some way, whatever it is. Once we've done that, 
I like to go back to D cells again, but now we're adding reactivity to my D cells. You're stopping because I said stop. Uh, you're stopping because like that drill I posted, the, a foam roller fell and you saw the foam roller fall. So now you're stopping. You're stopping because your teammate moved in front of you. Uh, for for a multitude of reasons, you could be uh, stopping. Then we're going to go, we're reactive, decelerating and stopping uh, and accelerating. So I'm stopping because I heard someone say stop or I saw a ball move or a teammate move or whatever it is. And I'm starting again because something else happened to make me start again. There are things at stake. There are things that are occurring to make me stop and to make me start. Like I said, things are at stake. Things are at play that I have to process to make me start and end and continue these maneuvers, right? So I went back to D-cell and I got reactive with it at first. Then I went to a reactive D-cell into into acceleration where we're adding them in again. Obviously, you can kind of follow down the line here. We're adding back in a reactive um, XL and D-cell in in different planes of motion. And then I think what really goes from there is, you know, free-flowing environments, the shadow drills, just getting things to be as as little construction as you can. The less constructed and, and planned out the drill is, the more it is training agility. I think that's what we have to realize. Like, take that as a nugget from this podcast. Like, the less planned out and detailed and structured it is, the more it is, you know, conducive to agility, right? You know, you have the rules of a sport, but after that, everything's on the, you know, ice or the court or the field, and it's occurring and it's going on. So, the, the more you, the less you can say, okay, you know, this activity is only going to occur in this 10 yard cone space that I have mapped out and you react to each other and the more free flowing it is, the better off things are when it comes to saying that something is working on agility. So I, I follow that progression, build up from that model. Um, you know, I like to think of the D cell and the start part of this and the more change of direction based thing as what I would line up with the start of a training cycle. And then as that training cycle progresses to more speed based movements, to faster things, to less work capacity, and it really starts to go in that direction that we start to progress, uh, moving from change of direction more to, um, agility based stuff where, like I said, there's something at stake and there's something that's driving, uh, the decision making process of the athlete. And I think that's, you know, the biggest thing that you have to remember, define the differences, but like I said before, define what you are trying to work on. If you don't know what you're actually trying to work on, what ends up happening is you just start throwing stuff in at the end of a speed day. There's no plan. I've been there too. I'm like, oh, like I want to make sure I'm like feeling like I'm working on this stuff with my athletes. Like, all right, like I just remembered to do it this week. We're going to add it in. Um, you know, we always had our plyometrics and our sprints and our strength training mapped out, but I never really mapped out that type of stuff. And now I do. Like I define what our deceleration and agility-based training is going to be, um, you know, in the way that I do the rest of my training cycle. So I'm going to define my primary goals in my training cycle, how I'm loading sprints, how I'm loading jumps, how I'm, um, you know, doing rep, what rep schemes I'm doing for my strength training. I'm doing all of that. Um, when I map out, you know, cycles and, and schedules in training. And I've also over the past six months started to add in mapped out of what I'm doing for change of direction, what I'm doing for agility, what I'm doing in the first weeks of the program that I'm progressing to in the next weeks of the program, and so on and so forth. Like, I really think you need to look and say, here's the layout of what I'm trying to do, because I'm trying to get to a certain point. Here's how it's going to be organized. Here how's, Here is how that is going to change the drills that I'm doing and the different things that I'm doing over the course of four to six weeks. And then here's how that's going to change going into the, the, the following six weeks. So keep on making those decisions based on, you know, 
Don't make your programming agility-based. Don't make your programming all reactive. There's going to be the reactive component of it because things change and you have to adjust on the fly. So you always have to have that ability. But there should be some structure and um, plan involved when it comes to this stuff. Like you should have an idea of how you want to progress and regress and you know move from one cycle to the next because it's the uh, beginning of the off-season versus in-season or the end of the off-season or whatever it is. Like there needs to be um, that shift and that plan uh, when it comes to it. So uh, I hope that was helpful for you guys. I'm really happy with how much we were able to get to on that. Um, you know, I look forward to, to continuing to uh, put these episodes out with as much content as I possibly can, answering your questions on these topics and, you know, leaving it so that when you leave this podcast and when you uh, are done listening, you feel like you're going to work with your athletes and get them better. You feel like you're an athlete that can go into their training now and add something in. Like, I want you to get done with it and say, man, like, I better go share that with that coach or that person that I know. They don't want to miss this because there is some really valuable information uh, that is being shared on the show and it's practical and you know there's always going to be a clear-cut subject onto what we're talking about and uh you can use the timestamps and you can follow along to uh this to where the episode goes and what i talk about to go back and listen uh to take notes there, there's there's examples provided like i want to give it all to you guys and make sure that um you know you're getting as much out of this show as you possibly can so uh, i appreciate you guys listening as always uh you know give me feedback let me know what you think share the show support the show whatever you got to do leave the review if you got a second it's quick it doesn't take too long uh but keep on listening keep sharing and uh let me know what you guys think and you know the job that i'm doing because it really helps me make the show better so i appreciate you guys listening and i will talk to you guys next week peace thank you for listening to another episode of muscles and management brought to you by challenger strength i'm your host jerry Filippo, signing off from the show that's changing how we view sports performance training and business